Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello, my name is Megan O'Hare and welcome to our podcast recording for the NIHR Dementia Researcher website. Hello, my name is Amy Monaghan and welcome to the first podcast recording for the NIHR Dementia Research website. Hello, my name is Chris Hardy and welcome to our podcast recording for the NIHR Dementia Researcher website. Hello, my name is Lakshmi Mendes and welcome to our podcast recording for the NIHR Dementia Researcher website. Hello, my name is Oz Ismail and today I'm hosting this podcast recording for the NIHR Dementia Researcher website. Hello, my name is Francesca Lafrene and welcome to our podcast recording for the NIHR Dementia Researcher website. Hello, my name is Joe Barnes and welcome to our podcast for the NIHR Dementia Researcher website. Hello, my name is Charlotte Stoner and welcome to our podcast recording for the NIHR Dementia Researcher website. Hello, my name is Adam Smith and I'd like to welcome you to this special on-location podcast recording for the NIHR Dementia Researcher website. Special because the fantastic Exeter Medical School is uh, playing host to us today by on-location from the Alzheimer's Association International Conference in Chicago. Um, I think something that... Um you you also have in other countries, but particularly in the UK is very strong when I go to various meetings that I have across Europe and in, even in South America, um, in Asia. We have a lot of public involvement, and I think that, in, in especially in dementia, is very strong. So it's getting stronger and stronger, the idea that we have to listen to the voices of people with dementia, because I do psychosocial research, and that's really important, and listening to family members. And so the input that these people have on our decision-making in research is very, very strong. And I learned a lot through that. And when I go, I work with still with people in Brazil, and uh, when I see the kind of activities that they have, it just strikes me that that is not there. And people are not being involved from the beginning, from the design of the study. And I'm being able now to take it there. So that's really, really nice. Are there any specific advantages that you think involving people at that really early stage confers? Well, they are the people living with the disease, so they are the experts. Actually, we had a residency in the Science Museum um, in London where we got about 700 people through and we were looking at lots of different tests of um, eye eye tracking. So, for instance, memory tests, we were showing people pairs of pictures and in the start of the eye tracking experiment, there'd be two pictures and then at the end, there'd be another two pictures, but one of them they would have seen before and we were trying to see whether people spent more time focusing on the image that they hadn't seen. So it was almost like a memory test there to see if they could remember that they'd seen it. There were other things to do with reading um, to see whether or not people had language deficits. uh, So we put some nonsense words in the middle of sentences and looked at how... I'm realised I'm wagging my finger here. That's completely (laughs) useless for a podcast. So there is... There's more research into what it's like for women who are diagnosed and living with dementia. Um, But in general, there isn't a lot really that looks at... The, the differences between men and women. And what we've found um, is that there's quite um, quite a lack of support available that appeals to men 
um, when they're diagnosed with dementia. So sporting memories is one of the ways that we can tap into appealing to men and getting more men out of the house and socialising with the other people and engaging with support. So, okay. so it's quite an active that you actually get people to come to you. Yeah, the groups are based in um, a variety of different settings in the community, mm -hmm. so they can be hosted in sports centres, uh, libraries and other community centres as well. Um, I was trying to encourage a lady to sit up at the table for lunch, but um, she had dementia and she kept telling me it wasn't lunchtime. <laughs> she didn't believe me and on top of that she had... Um, paranoia as well and as a staff member she just didn't believe me that it was lunchtime until she saw other people sitting at the table eating their lunch and she said oh okay and then she went up and then she ate her lunch really well so it's that kind of that's where the needs of the person fitted with the occupation itself and the environment allowed for it by having that space for them um so yeah i think the systems versus person-centered and the making meal times meaningful would be my key outcomes. When Chris had his diagnosis, the whole family received a diagnosis, we all had to change our way of living. We didn't change our life, but just our way of living to make um, certain adjustments for Chris uh, and certain adjustments in making sure somebody, you know, was somebody always available uh, if needed. But I think Chris and Hilary were diagnosed at an optimum time um, because we've had great inroads with the internet as Chris said, there have been lots of people before, and as Hilary said, saying the same things that they're saying. But now with the internet, people have had a much louder voice. Uh, people have been able to get together, and people like the researchers have been able to find the advocates like Chris and Hilary much more easily because of the internet and email and all the social media. People that are very, very passionate um, may seem to have a louder voice, it's just that they may be able to use the internet or, or social media uh, more easily or find out how to get involved. We didn't know about Alzheimer's Research UK until we went onto the internet yeah. and that has enabled people with dementia to actually have a much stronger voice. Prior to this, it was very much the carer's voice that was heard and our perception of what Chris may have wanted or, or may have needed as opposed to now it's their own voices being heard and being heard very strongly and worldwide. We're all guilty of using red and green as our sort of two yeah. primary staining colours but just yeah. changing red to magenta just makes a huge difference for people who are colour blind so yeah. we kind of forget that when you're saying and obviously this is a different stain to that one and actually it looks entirely the same colour to someone so just that five minutes changing it on image J and you can make it much more accessible to someone else. Oh, so I never thought about that. And I think the same rules apply to, you know, we, we all know those presentations, you know, PowerPoint presentations where they have a blue background and yellow text and it hurts oh, your eyeballs. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't do that to your poster either. Or blue and red. Um, at the moment, I'm involved in multiple ways. Um, I would say uh, one word... Uh, fits all in the sense of I'm kind of coordinating this international network. Uh, it's, a, it's a network made of 45 research groups all over the world. It includes North America, both US and Canada. It includes basically the UK and entire continental Europe and it also extends to Australia. 
And the major focus at the moment has been collecting and generating genetic data for a vast amount of samples that we've collected thanks to this network. So we basically now have up to 6,000 independent samples for which we have generated data. So it's, it's, it's probably the largest uh, to date data set on sporadic frontotemporal dementia. Uh, what about you, Fee? Um, I thought that I walked in accidentally to a fitness conference. Yes, you did just say my name wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I thought I walked into a fitness conference or that we were going to be doing like aerobics and I was like, I've got yeah. a sprained knee, I can't get involved in this. But uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely very interesting. Um, it has not helped me sell the fact that I'm not on holidays yeah. um, to my yeah. family who now firmly believe that I'm not doing any work at this yeah. moment. <laughs> Being um, the first time at this meeting, it's, I think it's really exciting to see research from a different angle because before I've been to um, MRI conferences, um, but coming here to um, the Alzheimer's Association, um, it's really nice to see that there's so many angles that you can actually um, approach this, the topic from. And the quote I heard today was, everything touches everything. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was really interesting the the link between the microbiome and the brain and so there's been lots of research which shows that you, there's a comorbidity between um, uh, gastrointestine uh, disorders and uh, like the central nervous system um, and it, I thought because I'm looking at how water passes into the brain um, here they were talking about how uh, the microbiota can pass like through the the cell walls and the tox like the toxicity that this um, that there is here and um, how changes in the microbiota um, you can see correlations in in disease so the they were looking both at Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. So I think I suppose it's really important like um, what goes in our body and how that affects how that affects our brain as well. Um, it's unfortunate I think that speech and language therapy is full of terms which need a lot of explanation. Mm. Um, it's, it's a real shame but um, not many people even know what aphasia is so let's take one bit at a time. Um, aphasia is an acquired language problem, a problem that's caused by damage to the language processing parts of the brain and it can um, result in difficulties with um, uh, understanding language, which includes reading, uh, understanding what you read, understanding what you hear and encoding what you want to say. So you'll have an idea in your head, but you can't put it into words and sentences necessarily. Um, and aphasia is um, probably most commonly caused by stroke, but um, we're here to talk about a progressive um, type of aphasia, um, which is um, a form of um, dementia, frontotemporal lobe dementia. So in this condition, the parts of the brain which are involved in processing language are affected by abnormal proteins being deposited in that area. And so the result is a progressive language loss over time. Um, and the reason it's called primary progressive aphasia is that the language is leading the dementia. People right. often think of dementia as being memory uh, problems and there are obviously types yeah. of dementia which fit into that kind of pattern but this is a language-led dementia. Mm -hmm.
I was working in uh, autism and I was really interested in um, how the brain processes social function. I was working in that in a sort of normal sense. How does the brain normally remember people and recall people and how does neurons process social information? I was working in autism uh, genetic mouse models however an opportunity came up to start to look at this in terms of Alzheimer's disease and when I started formulating these ideas there really wasn't a huge amount surrounding um, dementia and social withdrawal but it was noted there was a few studies that basically showed that the more um, the broader your social network so that's the more people you regularly um, communicate with, go out with, etc. Um, that can actually protect you from um, cognitive loss despite your um, pathology getting worse. And I was really mm. interested in that. So why, why, what is this about social that's important that actually is somewhat protective? Now since I started the fellowship more stuff like that's come out. So um, the Lancet Commission that showed that social isolation is a risk factor for dementia. There's more and more coming out that suggests um, that social factors are an important part of dementia, um, could even cause dementia. I mean, that's that's a very small proportion compared to other risk factors, mm -hmm. but it is now a bona fide risk factor. So that's where I was able to transition what I was doing and really very few people are trying to understand the mechanisms. There's a lot on the sort of social psychology mm -hmm. sides on showing that um, social isolation, etc., is a risk, but very few trying to understand where in the brain that was being manifested, the neural mechanisms, etc. So this is where we've been using mouse models to try and explore this a little bit more. Um, and so partly the work I do with Elethria is taking a whole brain approach to see uh, which brain regions, particularly within the social brain, so those regions that um, process social information, um, which ones may um, show more pathology or degrade earlier than others. Um, and with Steve uh, looking at how neurons function, so looking at different parts of the social brain, which we've now done, and seeing if there's um, differences, so one brain region is affected versus one that's not affected to give us some insights of maybe uh, this brain region is more important early on in social draw than than another and it gives us ways of targeting um, maybe therapeutically but by a variety of means we can actually try and improve social function if we understand it better and i remember from my own my own phd uh doing this field research doing a few hours in the care setting coming back and feeling exhausted, just really, really tired mm -hmm. um, and needing to kind of figure out a whole way of working around that. And I think it kind of ties into to what the others are saying in terms of um, of a, a kind of a broader acknowledgement of mental health and different mm -hmm. needs and creating kind of flexible workplaces. I don't know what the answer is. I do know that we can we can talk a bit more about it. Hello. I'm uh, Chris Roberts. I live in North Wales, right on the coast. Lovely, beautiful spot. I, I was diagnosed uh, about um, six years ago, maybe seven. Firstly, with um, vascular dementia, and then 
a little bit afterwards, three months afterwards, I think, um, with um, Alzheimer's. So I've got mixed dementia. Um, it was a bit of a learning curve because we were totally ignorant about dementia. So it took us a while, but after research, we understood the illness a bit better and we could embrace it a bit better. And with any life change, change, uh, life-changing illness, we changed our lives. And, um, and that's what we'll be doing now. We're involved in the same as Hillary, lo lots of similar things. And um, research actually gave us the hope that we were looking for. Because there was no cure. Uh, we thought it was the end of the world. And research gave us the hope we were looking for. It does give people hope. And it's, and it's fantastic to take part. This was a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher. Everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.